This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Thanks for joining me on this next episode of the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I am honored today to be talking to Dr. Sharon Saline, and we are going to be talking about what your child with ADHD wishes that you knew about their experience um, and about other things that will really help you in guiding them um, to be most successful. Thanks so much for joining me, Sharon. I appreciate having you here and you sharing your time and your wisdom with us. Will you just start by introducing yourself, who you are and what you do? Thank you, Penny. It's so great to be here. Um, I'm a clinical... I'm a clinical psychologist in Northampton, Massachusetts, and I have worked with children, teens, college-age adults, and families for almost 30 years. I've also consulted with numerous schools and done a lot of trainings with educators, parents, and other mental health professionals on ADHD, uh, understanding the teen brain, and how uh, parents and children can really come together more successfully in a family with less conflict. That's awesome. And so your new book is titled What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew. Do you want to start maybe the conversation by giving us a little overview of um, what's in the book and what we might talk about here today? Absolutely. This is a book uh, based on my experience as a psychologist doing doing child, adolescent, and individual therapy with college-age students, as well as years of being a family therapist. And what I noticed over time, and also when I was consulting with schools and working with families and students there, is that Kids often feel like parents and adults are not listening to what they have to say about themselves. That yeah. they're saying things and what the parents are hearing and responding to is not what they're trying to communicate. And so they kept, it's like people are missing each other's signals. Adults are saying things that kids aren't hearing. Kids are saying things that adults aren't hearing. And I, I just saw that there was this amazing opportunity uh, to take the voices of kids themselves with ADHD and share them with adults everywhere so that they would have a chance to be heard. And in the process of doing that, I created and sort of consolidated the work that I've been doing all these years into a model that I call the five C's of ADHD parenting. And um, those five C's are uh, self-control, compassion, collaboration, consistency, and celebration. You know, ultimately what I'm interested in is helping parents be able to create families where people have more cooperation and less conflict where there's more positivity and attention to what's going well instead of what isn't going well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's key to be successful in this special parenthood. Um, And I love that your five C's include things like collaboration and celebration, you know, those positive aspects that really make a difference with our kids, with our experience in parenting our kids. Um, And I know you're a a follower of Dr. Ross Green as well and his collaborative and proactive approach. And I find that really successful. We've talked about it several other times here on the podcast. And um, I talk about it when I write and, and talk to parents. And it's just really kind of this great foundation for Um, hearing your child, getting their experience, understanding where they're coming from. Absolutely. I I think Ross Ross Green has has really been, you know, a luminary in our field in terms of 
changing how parents think about interacting with their children. How we, how he and I go about it is slightly different, of course, but um, the point is that he he puts out, and I completely agree, is that you have to include children in any sorts of plans or programs that you're creating that are for them. Otherwise, mm-hmm. uh, in my mind, there's no buy-in. And so he does it in a particular way. I do it in a different way. And, and the right. way that I really do it is through using tools like reflective listening, uh, incentives that matter to kids, Mm -hmm. Um, sitting down and having conversations about those hard moments in a good moment. Because what I notice happens a lot in families is that there's a a delay in talking about the unpleasant stuff until you're in the middle of it. And then they try to talk and people try to talk about it and it never works because everybody's too activated to actually think clearly. So what I'm advocating is that people take those um, take that time to set up plans with their children for those moments when things aren't going well. Otherwise, you're in the moment, you're trying to negotiate, and it's bound to fail. No one's paying attention. No one's really self-regulated. You're not going to get the, the ultimate goal that you want of getting along better in those moments. Yeah, because the the frontal lobe is kind of blocked by all that emotional intensity. And so you can't physically or physiologically really um, rationalize in those moments. Um, So let's talk, go ahead. I was just gonna say, that's absolutely true. You know, you're in an amygdala takeover. This is what I call it. And your frontal lobe goes on vacation. And the way that you're going to get those frontal lobes back is is, there's a whole, you know, everyone has their own opinion about that, but the, you, there's through, there's breathing, there's listening to music, essentially changing the situation so Mm -hmm. that the environment is different. So you can kind of calm down. And one of the ways of doing that is through language. So when you sit with your child and you you're calm and you start asking them questions in a sort of in a matter of fact way, about what happened, you know, what's going on, then they can kind of slow themselves down. But what usually happens in these situations, particularly with raising kids with ADHD, is everybody gets so roiled up that everybody's in an amygdala takeover. And Mm -hmm. really, ADHD kids in particular who have a very hard time managing their emotions and their impulses need their parents to stay steady as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I used to be the parent who wanted to rationalize and talk it through. That's how I wanted to kind of fix those situations. And um, I learned the hard way over time that it just isn't possible. Like, it's not that my son didn't want to be rational. It wasn't that, um, you know, he didn't know how to be rational or even problem solve. It was that he biologically could not in that moment hear what I was saying, process what I was saying and use it. And we have found over the years that really just leaving it alone, not talking about it for him is what helps him to be able to return to a calm space where we can talk about it or where we can even get past it, you know, in that moment. Um, And I, you know, that was a big shift for me personally as a parent, because I always wanted to take care of it right then. I don't want to walk away angry or upset, you know, and so um, that was something that I had to take a cue from my son and really understand him and the way his brain is working and what he needs and shift my parenting approach to accommodate. And, and it's not that, you know, a lot of people feel like they're giving in to their kids in those moments. Um, I just had an email a day or two ago that said, I understand why I need to stay calm, but isn't that saying that the behavior was okay? And it's not, it's just reacting in a calm manner and waiting until those conversations about why the behavior was inappropriate is going to be more effective. That's absolutely true. The thing is that when a child is is completely in in the midst of a takeover, whatever you say, is, other than kind of in some ways comforting them mm-hmm. or reflecting back on on the feelings and words and what their body is showing you, 
is all that they can hear to help them sort of regroup. Trying to rationalize in the moment is, is, isn't going to work because that part of the brain is on, has taken a trip to the Caribbean for a right. few minutes. So I call this um, stop, think, and act. So the first part is that stop. And when you're calm and you put it aside and you wait and you attend to your child in whatever form they need in that moment, you are pausing the action. And that is very helpful for them because you're modeling calm. That will ultimately help them calm down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the more that I tried to rationalize with my own son, the more inflamed the situation became. It it wasn't just that it didn't work, but it made things worse um, because it was very agitating. That's absolutely right. So when things are calmer, whether that's a break that you have instituted, I, I, I advise pam- families to do something called a time apart, which they set mm. up for an event. And so what happens is that when an event is happening and people are dysregulated, there's, you call a time apart and you've decided in advance that that's going to be a minimum of 15 minutes or, or 30 minutes, depending how old your child is and what you're going to do about that. Now that works better for kids who are, I would say over 10. Um, and you can arrange in advance that when you call time apart, you can color, you can listen to music you can do a number of things. You can go outside and, you know, swing your baseball bat, whatever you want to do. Sure. Um, and I will also do what I need to do. But I, I think it's important to help your child know what those options are when they're upset. So they can basically look at a list that you've created and say, pick one of your time apart activities. I'm, I'm calling a time apart. Um, now, sometimes that's that. not... That's not possible to do. But in those moments, I would say that if you find yourself as a parent getting dysregulated, you can do my favorite trick, which I'm sharing with you and all of your listeners, go to the bathroom. (laughs) Every child, (laughs) every child understands that someone has to go to the bathroom. So you can go to the bathroom and close the door and just spend a little extra time in there. Run some water over your hands, splash your face, do what you need to do to get yourself together. Yeah. And that little break will assist you in weathering the storm that's on the other side of the door. Um, then, yeah. you know, for older kids who can do the 30 minutes, you can come back together and then have a conversation um, in, terms of like, in terms of processing what's going on or t- attempting to think about the problem and decide what that action is going to be. So you stop, you think when things, when everybody's a little calmer, which means you go over what's going on and how you're going to solve the problem. And then you act. And that is, I found the best way to help families in, you know, deal with those natural eruptions that occur in the course of life. Yeah. I love that you advocate to make a plan ahead of time as to what everyone's going to do when everybody gets emotionally intense. Um, I think that that will be more successful than trying to say, hey, go take a break or, you know, go to your room, which feels like discipline or punishment. You know, having that plan ahead of time, I think would make that whole situation easier to get through more efficiently. Um, I'm going to have to do that myself. I, I have uh, I have clients who have you know children as young as five or seven, and they tell me we can't do a time apart. They're they're hitting you know my child is hitting me. My child has grabbed onto my leg. Right. And my response is go to the bathroom. Your child understands that you have to go to the bathroom sometimes. So pry them off. Go to the bathroom close or lock the door and stay there for a few minutes. They'll be on the other side. They may be banging on the door. They may be screaming, (laughs) but you're not engaged with that. And ultimately that you can open the door and come out in a better space than you were before you went in. And you leave them there on the other side of the door for five, 10, 15 minutes, but take a few minutes and get yourself together. Um, nothing terrible is probably going to happen while you're doing that. Now, 
there probably are some extreme situations where children can't even be left alone that long. And in those moments, I think that the best thing for parents to do, if there happens to be another parent in the household, which there always isn't, um, is to uh, play tag with your partner and say, I'm out, <laughs> I need a break. Can you just manage this emotional eruption? I have to go get myself together so I can come back and help you. But right now, yeah. I'm losing it. And, and I think that's important. Rather than losing it and then having your partner kind of deal with sweeping up the mess. Right. I was just thinking, I was wondering if, um, you know, for kids who can't be left alone without your eyes on them, and maybe you don't have anybody else around in that moment to help, I wondered if you could set different zones, like in the living room, one side is the parent zone, one side is the kid's zone, and you have that as part of your plan ahead of time, when you, um, you know, take a break apart, then they could go to their zone and your zone. I, I don't know that it would be, it would work. I mean, I know when my son was that age, and he was really little, he was clingy and you know, pulling and yanking and pushing and stuff like that. But if they're really not safe on their own, I wonder if trying that might be helpful too. I think, I think that could work. I, I think I, you'd have to incentivize it. If you stay in your zone, you know, for yeah. five minutes and I stay in my zone where you can see me, mm-hmm. um, then you can have some TV, you know, but that all has to be set up in advance. You can't be negotiating that right, in the exactly. middle of the upset. So that would mean if you are, if you are able to do this, then you get this. If you're not able to do it, then you don't get that. And I just want to be clear that I don't advocate going to the bathroom for hours at a time. I'm just saying, go to the bathroom for two minutes and get yourself yeah. together so you can come back out. Yeah. Um, Sometimes kids, what they most want is is to actually be held in those moments when they're feeling mm-hmm. the most out of control, particularly younger children. It's scary. It's really scary when your feelings are so big that they take over your thinking. And that's how many young children live because that's the brain it develops from the back to the front and that that emotional control is in the middle. So when you're a child, it's it's not fully developed at all, you know, nearly yeah. at all. And even, you know, it doesn't really develop till you're 25 when those frontal lobes are fully formed. So I, I think it's important to, to again, have a conversation with your child in advance. I had one family where the, the child, uh, it was a, it was a little, uh, little boy and he would get very, you know, kind of playful, provocative and, you know, at different times. And, um, in those moments, the, the father would just yell at him and these, this just was not working because the boy would get angry and, and, and would throw things or kick him. And then the father would be angry and he would like take him to his room and close the door and leave him there, whatever, you know, I'm sure the story. So we came, we had a conversation and what the boy said was, well, in those moments, I really want to hug. I want to hug. And the father said, I can't do that. (laughs) And, and I said, can you, what can, what would need to happen for you to try? And that's what I would like parents to think about. Like, to be able to have that conversation with their child in advance, you know, Mm -hmm. when you're that upset, what would most help you? Because each situation is different, but the feeling is still the same. And so if you can set up what those options are and have that posted somewhere in the kitchen so that the parent could say, okay, we're in one of those explosions we talked about, you know, do you want A, do you want B, do you want C? And if they say none of the above, what's the option for that? Like you have to, as a parent, sit down and and lay that out. You can have A, B, and C, and if you say none of those, let's figure out what we're going to do then. Yeah. Then you stick with that plan over and over till, you know, after two or three times, your child will see that you actually are going to do what you said you are, and this is what's going to help. 
Yeah. And that doesn't just help the kids having a plan ahead of time. It helps us as parents too. When we get emotionally intense and we're wrapped up in the situation, um, you know, having a plan means that we don't really have to think rationally or make a choice in that moment. We, we already know what the choices are. That's exactly right. Because we're not thinking so clearly then either, because Mm -hmm. when you have a child in front of you who is dysregulated, whether it's verbal or physical or just, um, you know, just overwhelming emotion with tears, um, your, your, your first inclination is to make it go away. Because that's what we did when they were little. You know, when they were infants, they're crying. We have to decide, are they hungry? Do they need their diapers changed? Are they tired? You know, what what are the things that are going to help them soothe? How, how, how are we going to help them soothe? And yeah. as they get older, you know, one of the key um, traits of resiliency is being able to soothe yourself. So that's what we want to try to teach our kids by developing the executive functioning skills to do that and and having a plan um, that you can more or less follow most of the time because there are always exceptions and things don't work out and no one's expected to be perfect is Mm -hmm. helpful in creating that resiliency. Yeah. I am such a big fan of making a plan ahead of time to address anxiety because both of my kids struggle with some anxiety and I do too, honestly. Um, So I have found over time that making a plan ahead of time means that you don't have to worry before something might go wrong that you're worried about um, with what the outcome might be. You know, you have a plan of how to work through it. And I can't believe that I've never thought of making a plan for, for these kind of explosive, intense situations. It makes perfect sense. Well, you know, it's hard to think about everything. And that's part of why I wrote this book was because in talking to children, it became clear, oh, okay, this is what would help them. And so the plans don't have to be rigid. And honestly, the thing that really struck me when I talked to these children and teens is none of them expect their parents to be perfect. It was yeah. really, it was really touching they they have a lot of slack that they give their parents. And I think most of them would like a little more slack for themselves. Right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, it, you know, I think the importance is, the important thing is, is, is being able to work with them because they're as upset about these, these incidents as you are. Exactly. And I think sometimes parents forget that because their kids may act nonchalant or want to avoid talking about them. It's important to remember that in those moments, they don't want to talk about them, A, because um, the ADHD brain is a now or not now brain. Mm -hmm. This isn't happening now, so I don't want to talk about it. Right. But also because of the shame associated with those moments and the discomfort associated with those moments. Mm -hmm. We want to try to, we as humans want to focus on what's more pleasant, um, but without having some awareness of what isn't going well, we can't stick with what is going well, what works more. The goal here is to do more of what works, which means we have to look at what isn't working sometimes. Yeah, my son would say to me, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to live that again. (laughs) And I'm like, well, we don't have to exactly go into detail about what happened. We just have to go into detail about what we can do differently next time that's going to be more helpful to you. Um, But they do, you know, I think those intense moments are much more traumatizing than I think we as parents realize. Um, And so, you know, when they're resisting talking about it, it isn't just because they want to avoid it or are afraid they might be disciplined or anything like that. I think it's just really, it brings back that intensity for them that that they don't want to have at all at any point, you know? I, I completely agree. I know for myself as a parent who runs on the anxious side that the times of my parenting I most regret are the times when I lost it. And most of the times that I lost it were because I was 
underlying like afraid of something that was generally irrational. You know, one, I remember when my daughter was 15, she was, was going to go out on New Year's Eve with like a little thin jacket and <laughs> totally embarrassing. I yeah. stood in front of the door and I yeah. said, you are not going out unless you put on a winter coat. And mm-hmm. we had this huge fight. It was ridiculous because I was, I was reduced to being younger than she was. Um, I let myself go there. And uh, ultimately, she took a jacket and she told me she was not wearing a hat no matter what I said. And I said, fine. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was 20 degrees outside and she was going to be outside for hours going to yeah. first date in our town. And my husband afterwards, he looked at me and was like, Sharon, there is a natural consequence to not taking a, ra- a warmer jacket. <laughs> I said, I know, I'm just worried that if she doesn't have a jacket, then she'll get sick and she already isn't in school and I'm just this way off on a, on a little tangent. Yeah. So That's exactly how my brain works, my parent brain. That's my natural parent brain. I have to go against it a lot. Right, <laughs> it took me time. It, take, it takes time and practice to go against it. And, yes. and I have to say that, you know, my children are older now, they're both in college and they still have those irrational fears. I'm just better at containing them. <laughs> right. You learn over time that, you know, that doesn't really work or that, um, you know, a lot of that irrational fear doesn't come true. You know, you get that experience and then you say, okay, this really is irrational, but it's hard when you have an anxiety brain, when you have a worry brain, um, that whole overprotectiveness, you know, it took me years to realize that that was actually doing more harm than good because they weren't learning independence. They weren't learning problem solving for themselves. They weren't learning, you know, to think things through. I'm going to be outside for five hours. It's 20 degrees. I should have a heavy, you know, like exactly. I realized that I was really preventing them from gaining these skills by being so overprotective. Um, but it's still very much my natural inclination. If I don't regulate myself, <laughs> that's exactly where my brain goes. But um, yeah. And, so, and one of the things that, um, that I think is very hard when you're in the thick of parent of those parenting years. So mm-hmm. from five to 18, you know, it, particularly five to six, 16 or 17, when you're really in it is to see far ahead into the future. I, I can't tell you how many parents come into my office and they're so worried that their kids aren't going to make it in the world because mm-hmm. they forget their lunch three times a week or their room is a mess or they're, they're failing math. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I feel uh, really confident in saying is that, you know, um, everything has a way of working itself out in the end. Um, It may not be the end that you're envisioning, but it's going to work out in some way and you're not there yet. So you can't know that. But I can say that with my experience and I put this in the conclusion of my book, you know, these kids who I met with and over the course of two years from the time I interviewed them to the time that I had written the book or finished, they, their lives had changed pretty much overwhelmingly for the positive. Um, They had matured more, um, which is the best friend of kids with ADHD. Maturity is, is really their, their hand in their best friend. I mean, that is what's going to help them get through in every single way. Mm -hmm. They had uh, also found themselves a little bit more, accepted themselves. Their parents had kind of allowed them more space to be who they were. Some of them transferred to a different school. Maybe they went to an art school. Uh, one girl was in a was a, um, a, La- a Latino girl who was in a predominantly Caucasian school and transferred to an arts magnet school where she had more friend, more uh, of the student population were students of color and she made friends and she was able to relax in her environment. So um, one, one student um, realized that what he wanted to do was become a hairstylist and transferred to a vocational high school and is now working at a local salon doing really well. So these weren't necessarily the things that parents had envisioned for their kids, but over time, being open 
to those possibilities helps the children and helps the families. Yeah, you really have to have a very open mind when you're parenting kids with ADHD. You really have to kind of throw out what your preconceived notions of what parenthood is or what a childhood should look like and let your child guide you. Um, you know, it's just, I've, I've talked about before, um, realizing that a high IQ doesn't mean you're going to get great grades because you may not be good in school. That doesn't mean that you won't have a successful career later in your life or you won't be successful and able to take care of yourself, you know, but I grew up thinking that it was this kind of domino effect. You had to get good grades in high school to get into college. You had to get good grades in college to get a good job and to get, you know, a decent income. And, and it's not necessarily true. There are lots of other things that kids can do and, and may even be more passionate about and happier doing. That's exactly right. And, and I think that it's hard pretty much impossible when you're parenting a 10 year old to see down the road to them being 19 or 20 and Mm -hmm. being okay and have figured things out more. You just can't see that. And so all you really have is the present, which is why it's so important to have that give and take that you're, you know, alluding to, which is that we actually come have children because In the beginning, we are their teachers, right? We have these children because we want to have that experience of being a parent, of giving to a child, of raising a child. And in the implication is that, you know, we are their teachers. When in reality, I think that actually after the first few years, our children are our teachers in many ways. You know, we obviously have to impart to them their values and ethics and following, following the law and being right. a good citizen and being a good person and a family member. But in many ways, our children have things to teach us. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of myself um, as an incredible learner from my children. And the, most, the thing that I had to learn the most was being less reactive um, and and being more patient. And every year I would pray on New Year's Day, like this year is the year that I'm going to be more patient and less reactive. And, you know, it was the same every year. I kind of laughed at myself silently. Okay, here we go again. Um, Because Mm -hmm. I come from a pretty high voltage family. My brother has ADHD. So I think I come a little bit by my emotional intensity naturally. my children were t- are teaching me about that and they still are, yeah. you know, and I just try my best to receive it and not put myself down because of it. Yeah. Being open just to who our kids really are, you know, what's true for them. And, and that changes, you know, you can't decide when they're nine, one day you have an epiphany and you realize exactly who they are. It's going to ebb and flow throughout our entire lives. But, um, you know, just having that openness, I think, and it shows our kids that we accept who they are, we're in their corner, we're behind them, um, and that we're proud of them. You know, kids with ADHD get all of these negative messages, especially in our mass education system, that they're not capable and they're not um, really accepted. And so, just by being open to our kids showing us who, who they are and honoring that, I think really gives them such a positive foundation. That's totally, I mean, that's completely true because I heard over and over again from kids, the message, can we focus on something I like about myself? Because I spend so much time focusing on things I don't like about myself mm. or what I do wrong. And, and that's really more of what they want to hear from their parents and also their teachers that, you know, show me a little bit about what I'm doing right. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the basis of positive psychology, you know, focusing on what's going well. And, 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 and enhancing that, um, of course, we have to attend to the things, that, that you, some of the character, characteristic, characteristics, excuse me, that are, are weaker or uh, problematic, but mm-hmm. we want to have more balance. I mean, the positivity ratio is three to one. And um, according to Barbara Fredrickson, and, and most people with ADHD, kids and adults do not live with the three to one ratio. No. 
Um, so one of the things that I, I really heard from kids over and over again is believing that their parents really were there for them made all the difference. Yep. Most kids who succeeded, as I said, towards the end of the book, felt, felt overwhelmingly like their parents really were there for them and listened to them, gave them guidance, even when they didn't want to listen, even when they didn't hear it, went to bat for them at school, uh, helped them uh, clean up their room by sitting there full, you know, saying, do the, do the socks, no, let's do the shirts, you know, really yeah. those kinds of moments, or just sat in their room and folded laundry while they put it away, um, having some time together or listen to music while they rake the leaves, whatever it was that these kids felt like having my parent on my side made all the difference. And that's not what we want as parents. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's so hard to do that because um, it's frustrating. You know, raising mm -hmm. kids, ADHD is frustrating. Raising any kids are, is frustrating. Yeah. And whether they've ADHD or not or anything else, it's, it, you know, it, it can just, pull, you can pull your hair out. Um, but we have to try to convey our frustration for what they do, not who they are. Exactly. And yeah. Most kids interpret it as something is wrong with them, not mm -hmm. with what they did. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of kids with ADHD are kind of hypersensitive to that too, the the rejection aspect of it. Um, I know my son talks all the time about, well, you're saying you don't like me. No, it's the behavior that I'm upset with, not who you are. It's just this one thing that you did that's the problem. Um, but I think they're more prone to absorbing that as a message for their entire being rather than what we're really focusing on in that moment. Right. And, you know, I probably on my little rant that I just did, I, I wanted to make sure that I convey to all those parents who are listening that what you're doing is sinking in. Mm -hmm. Your child may not thank you. Your child yeah. may not acknowledge what you're doing and notice, you know, notice it outwardly, but right. it's in. And, and that's kind of an amazing thing. If you think about it, um, I had one client who, whose father was always telling her, look behind you at the trail you've left. Cause she was like, mm. you know, I think he had kind of referred to her as pig pen, which I worked with him on because it was not the best reference, obviously. Right. Um, and they had a lot of conflict, but when she got old enough, you know, maybe a year or two later, she started babysitting and she found herself saying to the kids, look behind you at the trail, you're right. <laughs> look behind you at the trail you're leaving. And she came into session one day and she says, Dr. Sharon, I can't believe it. I'm saying that now it's in there. Yeah, and it's programmed. That, that was a huge turning point for her and for her relationship with her father. Not that yeah. she did it all the time, but that it was there and she knew it was there. Yeah, that's so funny. I think it's really easy for us as parents to relate our kids' behavior to something that we know, that we think is going to help them visualize. But in doing that, a lot of times we're really just pointing out the negative and calling attention to it. But I think so many of us as, as adult parents have had that moment where we turned around and went, oh my gosh, I'm my mother or oh my gosh, I'm my father. <laughs> like you hear, you have that one pivotal moment where oh, it's like, oh. I hear the, the voice comes out of my mouth and I, and I, and I cringe mm -hmm. as, as the sense is going into the air. Um, yep. And then you think, oh, yeah, I was paying attention or, oh, yeah, they were right when they told me that. <laughs> that right. makes sense now when as a kid, you didn't want to hear it or it didn't make sense to you. Suddenly that switch flips. And right. Those yeah. are the good. Those are the good times. Those are the good times when I feel like, oh, OK, yeah, that was a good thing that I retained. Yeah. Most of us are trying so hard not to do what was done to us. And 
um, a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And many of us are doing what we liked was done to us to repeat it. So it's sort of a balance between those things. Um, yeah, for sure. One thing I just wanted to clarify before we wrap up was that when you're making this plan of what you're going to do with your time apart before you have these intense times, that it's really important that parent and child are collaborating to create that plan. We as parents can't just sit down and dictate this is how this is going to go because then it's not going to work for our kids. It doesn't work, particularly for kids with ADHD who mm -hmm. need buy-in. Many kids, in fact, I would say most kids, want to participate in whatever is being created that they're supposed to co cooperate with. And mm -hmm. I think that has to do with the changes in parenting over the past few genera generations. Parents, very, many parents no longer use do what I say or else. It's just, it's not really what's happening anymore. In, and some parents ask their children's opinions too much. So it's in right. between. We're going, for the, we're going for the gray area in between. And so the idea is that you sit down and you ask your children, your child questions. Like, what do you notice about the times when you're angry that isn't, that isn't working? What do you notice that does work? Mm -hmm. How can we do more of what works? Mm -hmm. uh, how, what do you need from me in those moments? And you ask questions with a genuine curiosity. You are like Sherlock Holmes. You are investigating and getting information. And you write things down so you remember what your child's saying, and they know you're really paying attention. Then you offer some of your insights. Um, what do you notice that's happening? You, know, you can start with the very first question. Well, what I notice what's happening they can say their piece. You can say your piece. Mm -hmm. you know, I notice. I notice that too, and I also notice this. And I think the language is very important, Penny, because yeah. it's very different to say to your child, "I notice this," versus "You do that." Yep. Because the second comes out as a blaming statement, mm -hmm. and the first comes out as observation. Yep. Your child is going to be more interested in working with you if they feel that you're observing something that they're doing and you're working together to solve the problem, just like a science experiment. And you could even use that analogy. But if yeah. you're sitting down and saying, I don't like when you blah, 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 and we have to change that and you need to do better, forget it. There's, it's no, you're not going to get a lot of cooperation because that's not actually collaboration. Collaboration is you sit down, it's a yes and. Yes yeah. and. Yes and. I see that and. And the point of it is to come up with some sort of very simple program that you then come back a week later and say, how are we doing? And a week after that, how are we doing? Because kids can really only change one thing at a time. Yeah. In fact, I think adults can only change one thing at a time. And one of the challenges in raising kids with ADHD is because their executive functioning skill deficits happen in multiple areas, parents come, in, come to see me or talk with me and say, I want to change A, B, C, D, E. I'm like, whoa, I'm so overwhelmed. <laughs> I just want right. to, can we just start with which is the most important thing? And I would ask your child, you know, what is the most important thing? that you think needs to be different at home. Mm -hmm. Because that's where you're going to get the most buy-in. What should be yeah. different? I mean, if they say something like, what should be different is that I should have more TV time. Okay. Well, what do you think you could do differently that would earn you that TV time? Yeah. I don't know. Okay, well, I have an idea. One thing that I think would help you earn more TV time is if you um, put your lunchbox on the counter, emptied it, when you came in, put your backpack in your cubby, you know, those kinds of things. Maybe that's mm -hmm. too much to ask. So maybe a way to, good, uh, to earn TV time is by sitting down and doing homework at a particular time that we agree on, and I'll sit at the table with you and do some stuff on my computer. So we are all working together. You know, link what they want with what you want them to do. Yeah. And that's collaboration at its best. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so key. Without that buy-in, we are just spinning our wheels. 
99% of the time, it's not going to work. Um, that's really, and I think that's a point where um, it's very different than traditional parenting. Um, you know, traditional parenting is more authoritative and making commandments and kids following them because you told them to do it. Um in this collaborative approach, you get their buy-in and then they're, you know, they have something at stake in the game. They're, they're ready to do their part for the outcome that way. Because kids actually want to please their parents. Yep. And there you're that the thing that I learned over and over in writing this book and in the 30, almost 30 years that I've been a, a psychologist is that kids believe that what their parents think about them is important mm -hmm. even if they don't show it and so if you start with the premise that ultimately my child wants to do well and wants to please that's a way better place to start than my child is messing up and I need to fix that yep um, because the, the first way is that more collaborative approach, which keeps you calmer and them calmer. And there's more uh, compassion and love and, dare I say, fun. Because it's more fun to do the dishes each night together, listening to music that your child picks, than to yell at them repeatedly to do the dishes and have them not do it. Yep. No, you can say, fine. You know what? I noticed that you can't do the dishes on your own. I'll put the food away and dry while you're loading the dishwasher. You know, that you start there. Ultimately, you may get to the place where your child does it all, but that's not where you can start because that's not working. Yeah. You're creating an environment where your child can succeed based on who they are and what they need exactly. at that time. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's the key. That is the key. And I think that most parents who are raising kids with ADHD want to feel that they are part of a functioning, you know, an engine. Every part, parts are running smoothly. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that it's harder to do that with kids with ADHD because the areas where they're challenged are very, are, can be glaring. And, and sort of stop the engine in a particular place. Like if your child has difficulty with time management, then the whole engine is going to be off in terms of getting out of the house in the morning. So um, uh, you can focus on, I would like yes, less yelling in the and less arguing in the morning, but then the ultimate goal is how am I going to teach my child to manage time and sequence what they have to do more effectively? Yeah. So. But that is high-order high thinking, which is not going to happen in the middle of a yelling match to get through shoes and grab your backpack and get in the car because otherwise we're going to be late. Exactly. So, um, yeah, that pre-planning is so important for success. And it's hard because, you know, 50% of kids with ADHD have a parent with ADHD. And so if you yourself are struggling in, in areas that are similar to where your child struggles... Um, it's going to be hard to teach them <laughs> yeah. uh, to overcome what you yourself are struggling with. Um, yeah. I think that's where structure is often um, really helpful when a parent is also struggling. I get that question a lot. How do I teach my child, you know, time management, for example, if I can't manage it either? And and I always say, well, first, make everything routine that you possibly can and schedule everything that you possibly can, you know, and then right. that just makes it so much easier, I think, um, when you're struggling in those areas, that executive functioning area. I agree. And, and maybe incentivize yourselves as a team. So mm -hmm. remember that TV, that extra TV you wanted? Well, if we work together and get out of the house by eight o'clock every morning, you can have an extra 15 minutes before dinner when I'm cooking so mm -hmm. that you incentivize their cooperation because they, there's something they want and there's something that you want. Um, 
Or you may decide, you know, you want that extra 15 minutes. Why don't we pick a show that we're going to watch together? I have a, a family now who's watching um, uh, um, Parks and Recreation. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when the activity, the things have been completed that have earned the episode, they sit down together and watch the episode. And it's, you know, their their 14-year-old son really likes to sit down and watch the show with them. Right. So, you know, those parents who have middle school students who think, oh, my child doesn't want to make anything to do with me. That's not true. You know, it's just what you're doing, you know? Right. Yeah. That makes a big difference. Right. So we have come to the end of our time for this episode. Anything else that you really wanted to make sure to add? I will definitely have links to your book as well as your website and ways that our listeners can connect um, on the show notes, which are accessed at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 044 for episode 44. Anything else, any other remarks you wanted to make? I would like to thank you, Penny, so much for having me and Absolutely. to have this conversation. And I just want to reach out to all those parents and say, you're not alone. Many other parents are struggling and succeeding in ways that you are. Mm-hmm. And remember that you matter so much to your child, even if they're not showing it. So yeah. um, work together. Uh, to overcome the hurdles that you're sharing, that that you can do that. And when you do, treat yourselves to some kind of celebration. You know, when you've worked together to clean up his clean up the room, go downstairs and bake some cookies or have, yeah. have a snack together. You know, do something that is um, fun to balance the hard work. You need it and so do they. Yeah, absolutely. And deserve it even more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we're all working hard at it and we may not realize it, but um, definitely that the fun parts are necessary. It's part of self-care. I think I see parents working so hard today, Penny. It is... uh, um, it is harder to parent today, I would venture, than at perhaps any other time. Um, yeah. All of the electronic stuff and the two working parent households or the single parent household of working parent households, there is so much pressure on, on parents today, not to mention the, the, the sort of social judgments around if your child isn't doing well, how that yeah. reflects on you. And I just want to tell parents, give yourself some slack. Congratulate yourself every day for three good things that you've done well that day, because I'm sure they're there. Yeah, I like that. It's a good way to end the day on a positive note, too. Mm, Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with all of our listeners. I know that they are going to get a lot out of this conversation as well as your book. Um, Again, the book is What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew. And with that, we will conclude this episode. I will see everyone on the next show. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit the website, parentingadhdandautism.com for so much more on successfully raising kids with ADHD. Be sure to check out the podcast section as well for previous shows. Join us next time for more parenting strategies and insights that actually work for kids with ADHD.